from Luke 24, on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood before them in dazzling apparel, and they were frightened, and they bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember, as he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. If you would, as always, we encourage you to open up your scriptures and uh, pop them open to uh, Luke 24. We're going to be walking through this text, and I think it's going to be much easier for you if you're following along with me, and the words will be on the screen as well for you to be able to track that along. The word here, our passage today begins with the word but. By the way, I'm always, always a little nervous when I get started on, uh, in a sermon as I'm preparing to get up front, and so I often don't hear the song right before we come up. That's a great passage, the song that we just sang. Uh, here's, here's my heart, O Lord, here's my life, O Lord. But then particularly, speak what is true. Uh, our understanding here at Hebron Church is that speaking what is true is not our social analysis Speaking what is true is not how we assess situations. It's not even some learned commentary upon the Scriptures. When we're talking about speaking, when we are asking the Lord, here's my heart, Lord, here's my life, we are not saying, here, take me and use me somehow. We're saying, here I am, so speak to me. That's what we understand when we come upon the Word of God, the Scriptures. In light of that, let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing here upon our time together. Lord, we do ask exactly that, that as we give our lives, as we give our hearts to You, so You would hear them and that You would renovate and change our lives, mold us and shape us more and more according to Your Word, we pray in Your Son's name. Amen. Our passage today begins, verse 1, with that very first word, but. Now, the word but is a connecting word. In our English language, it connects two different ideas, usually sets up a contrast, but in any case, the point of the word but is that it links two ideas. I beg you, as we spend more and more time together as a congregation, I am consistently going to be urging you, when you read the Scriptures, to read slowly. We have a thing where we read way too fast over the text and we don't pay attention to simple insights like the fact that when we start a passage off with the word but, something should ring in our minds. That connects to something previous. What is going on? We can't assess what God has in store for us today without noticing that the word begins, the passage for us today begins with but, it assumes what has taken place beforehand. If you've been a part of our worshiping body for the past seven, eight weeks, we have been looking at the seven last words of Jesus. As he is hanging on the cross, as he was crucified, these are the seven things in which he has said, and we've kind of highlighted those seven things, not because they're special in of themselves, but because collectively they kind of hold forward for us the crux of our faith. 
the cross of Jesus Christ. If you will come here at Hebron, if you are part of the worshiping body or the ministering body at Hebron, you will hear this over and over and over again, that Christianity is the cross of Christ. It is there at the cross where we experience salvation. It's there at the cross where we hear of forgiveness. It's where we hear of real comfort, the comfort that God has for us, where we understand godly desire. It is the culmination of God's redemptive plan to fail to talk about the cross of Jesus Christ, to fail to focus upon the cross of Jesus Christ, is ultimately to fail to be Christian. And if you ever hear a sermon from here, or a ministry that functions out of this, this church that does not, you, you have the right, you must come and ask us, how does this center upon the, the cross of Jesus Christ? Because that is what it means to be a Christian. Now, it seems ridiculous that we have to talk about this. But we do. Because we live in a society right now, we live in a world right now that is redefining the very concept of what it means to be Christian. Christian now means living nicely, or loving well, or being a good person, or, 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 or. All those things are important. All those things are part of the Christian life. But all those things happen because of the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is not a sideline issue. The cross is the focus of our faith as Christians. I beg you, never lose sight of the cross. But, there's that but... In our passage, right off the bat, our passage begins with the word but, and what the author is doing there is he's not saying, okay, now that's done. You've just talked for seven, eight, ten weeks on the cross of Christ. Let's start into something new. No, the word there, but, draws the reader to connect what has gone on beforehand. And if you flip in your scriptures, you can see very clearly in chapter 23 of Luke that he is talking about the death of Jesus Christ, the cross of Christ. And now it connects, the but connects that with what's coming on forward. And as you know, if you're familiar with the story of Jesus Christ, as you heard it read, you remember and recognize that this is the resurrection account. Here we have the cross of Christ that connects, that leads to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now this has to be stated because all too often I think that we view the resurrection kind of as an exclamation point. Okay, God did everything for us on the cross. The cross is where our sins are forgiven. The cross is where we come face to face with the God of love who loves us and has given himself to us. That's the main point. Oh, and isn't it great too that Jesus rose from the dead? That's not the biblical picture. The biblical picture weaves together, links together in an unbreakable way the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without one, the other means nothing. It is at the resurrection of Jesus Christ where we know for sure that Christ's sacrifice for you has been accepted by the Father. How do we know that the Father looked down on Jesus and said, okay, I appreciate what you did here, but it doesn't really matter, or I'm not going to take it, or I don't accept it, or something is wrong. We know that by the resurrection, the fact that the Son, that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, is God's stamp of approval upon the very sacrifice that He gave for us. How do we know that it's possible for a human being, for those of us to be in the very presence of God Himself? Because the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ is right now in the presence of God the Father. Therefore, we know for sure we too are in the presence, can be in the presence 
of God the Father. This is the point of the resurrection. Not that it comes along kind of like dessert. You know, it's a good thing that happens at the end of the storyline or whatever. Whenever my mother was away, my father was in charge of meals. And we had dessert first. We always ate dessert first. My dad would make some kind of a quip always about, you know, well, just in case I die, I've got the good stuff out of the way. You know, they kind of the idea that, you know, okay, you've got dessert, and dessert's just kind of the benefit at the end of the story, but the story is all about the cross of Christ. That's not the biblical picture. Yes, the story is about the cross of Christ, but tied inexplicably to that in a way that cannot be broken is the resurrection of Jesus Christ as well. And you picture this a little bit right off the bat in the text. And again, if you're reading slowly, some of these things jump out. The text begins with the word but, but then it says, at at dawn at the first day of the week. Why the first day of the week? Well, to some extent, now why does the author emphasize that it's the first day of the week? Well, to some extent, simply because that happened to be chronologically what happened. On the, the Friday, Jesus was crucified and died. Saturday was the Sabbath. Sunday's in, the first day. Okay, I asked the earlier services this, and I will confess a bit here of myself. When I think of my week, I think of the first day of my week being Monday. I, I think of it as being Monday. I've been a pastor for whatever years, but I still think of it as Monday. Yes, I know it's supposed to be Sunday. That's a Christian model. That's a Christian picture of the first day of the week. And it's intentional so, and it is made intentional here by the work of Jesus Christ. Saturday was the day of worship. It was the day of, of rest and recovery. After a week of hard work, the Jews and the people who followed after the Lord would rest on Saturday. It was the blessing. It was the working for the weekend kind of mentality that we kind of hear about sometimes in our society. We work hard to get to that spot. But with the resurrection of Jesus Christ on Sunday, the first day of the week, suddenly the very calendar for Christians, every way that the the Christians think even about time shifts. It's no longer that the important day of the week is at the end. It's not the seventh day of the week that stands out. For Christians now, the first day of the week stands out. So that as Christians we know we don't work towards God's blessing at the end of the week. Rather, it is out of God's blessing. It is out of that worship. It is that first day, that Sunday day, that then launches us into the rest of our week. It is God's grace first by which we then live through the rest of the week. So we have our first day of the week. At the very first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb. Who's the they? The day, they here are the women. There was a group of women, uh, that are, and if you need to track that, you can look back into the earlier verses in, verse, in chapter 23. And you have the women here that followed after Jesus. The most famous of which is Mary Magdalene. Then you have Mary, the mother of James. And then you have... Uh, uh, Salome and Johanna and there's a number of other women so there's a group of women here now what are they doing again this is kind of if you're reading slowly then you catch they went to the tomb taking the spices that they had prepared now I'm going to give you the historical understanding of the spices for a second but I want you to be thinking what is the author doing by emphasizing the spices at this point in the story 
The spices are the way in which you would not quite embalm the body, but the way in which you prepare the body for burial. So when somebody died, you would pack the body basically in spices, and the spices then would kind of embalm the body-ish, kind of preserve the body, prepare the body for burial. So when somebody died within the next 24 hours, unless it was the Sabbath, then you would go ahead and you would surround the body, pack the body with spices. We're told in the Gospel of John that the women took about 75 pounds of spices with them. Now, if they were following what the general trajectory is at that time period, you took about a half a pound of spices for every pound of body. Uh, We don't have any physical descriptions or very limited physical descriptions of Jesus, uh, but this is actually one insight where we might get the fact that if they took about 75 pounds of spices, then you could kind of come to the understanding that maybe Jesus was about 150 pounds or so uh, to to understand that. Of course, um, uh, people in general, uh, nutrition-wise, etc., were smaller at that time period, so he he would have been a good-sized man at that time period, about 150 pounds or so, assuming the 75 pounds of spice. But here's the idea behind this. Why does the author emphasize that they were bringing spices to the tomb? Two days ago, three days ago on Friday, they saw Jesus die. Then they watched him being taken off the cross, and then they saw him go over to, saw him taken over to the tomb and put inside the tomb. Then it was the Sabbath day. They prepared the spices and they waited. And then Sunday morning, the first day of the week, they go to the tomb in order to wrap the spices, the body with the spices. Their minds are occupied by, with what they have seen. Their minds are occupied by what they know to be true, what they have just experienced. And you can tell that because their experience has now led them to the point where they are to prepare the body for burial. But when they get there, the stone is rolled away. From the other accounts, we know that the stone was very large. There was some concern about how the stone was going to get rolled away. There was Roman guards there that were protecting the stone, or Roman authorities that were protecting the stone at that point from grave robbers. But when the women show up, the stone is rolled away. Now, my guess is that the, that, that, that was a little odd. The women kind of went, nah, what's that all about? But there could have been other reasons for that. Somebody else could have been coming to prepare Jesus' body. There could have been other reasons why the stone was rolled away. But then in verse 3, they go into the tomb. Now, the tomb sizes could always differ and, and shift, but it was undoubtedly large enough for at least somebody to, to walk inside. So don't think a deep, long cave or anything like that, but nevertheless, something large enough where a person can come in, probably stand while they are in there, look around, notice that Jesus' body is gone. Look at verse 4 for a second in the Scriptures. If you have that available, the women then, they go in there, they find that Jesus' body is not present in the tomb, and while they were perplexed about this, while the women were perplexed about this. Now, I like doing puzzles. I like doing all kinds of puzzles and across the board, uh, uh, playing with different things. I like mysteries and watching mystery movies, reading mystery novels. I know what perplexed looks like. Perplexed for me looks like, okay, I'm doing this puzzle. It's a number puzzle or a word puzzle or something like that. And I know the answer's out there. 
and I'm not quite grasping it. So I'm sitting there and my face is kind of screwed up like it is right now and I'm pondering. To me, that's perplexed. There's an answer out there and I know it. I just have to find it. That's not this word. When the, when the women were perplexed, the word here is, is empty-minded. The, the, the gobsmacked is a good British term. You know, they, they, they're, they are completely befuddled. They have no idea what's going on. This is one of these things where you went, you go into some, a situation and you find yourself perplexed. It's not like, wow, I gotta figure this out. It's like, what's going on? I took, uh, I was at a, my car at one point filled with all of my clothes and everything down in Oakland. And when I came out from visiting somebody, my car had been broken into, my clothes were all rifled, everything was, was tossed around, and I remember just standing there for like hours on end. You know, cause, and, and nothing was happening upstairs because I was just so completely taken by the, that's got, that's per, perplexed. The women here are overcome with what has taken place. They are completely be, beside themselves. But then notice what happens. While they were perplexed, and then you have that great biblical word, behold. Behold is a great term in scriptures. You know, we try using that someday in a sentence. Behold, it is I. Uh, you know, and nobody, nobody talks about behold, but we read it in scriptures and it jumps out at us because in part, almost every time it's used in scriptures, God is doing something unique and remarkable. That's kind of the emphasis behind the word. When the scripture authors use the term behold, they are making an announcement, or uh, some translations call this suddenly. And suddenly there were men standing there in dazzling white or something like that. So it, there's, behold is that sense of God acting, God doing something unique, God doing something immediately and in power. Behold, while the women were standing there perplexed, Two men were standing there in dazzling clothing, dazzling attire. Now, the idea of dazzling attire here is basically capturing the sense of whiteness. It's, it's white upon white. Uh, some translations use it's white as lightning. It's a brightness of lightning. It's an overwhelming sense of, of whiteness that is striking the people here. And for us, it's hard for us to appreciate what that's like because we have Tide and Clorox. And, you know, I have Kelly, and she makes things white for me. And that's, you know, so a sense of whiteness doesn't jump out at us nowadays. You have to remember 2,000 years ago, everything was gray. Everything was draft. They had colors, they had dyes and stuff like that, but what they couldn't do is get things really white. And now immediately, some of you know your scriptures are flipping through some texts, and you're recognizing all those times when Jesus stands in a robe of dazzling whiteness in Revelation chapter 1, and the whiteness blinds John. He can barely see. Or when we talk about the sin that is removed from our bodies, we are washed what? White as snow. The authors are, the biblical authors are using the term whiteness to try to identify something absolutely unhuman. It's as remarkable, it's unique. And that's what happens here. The angels appear before the women in the tomb and they know they're angels and it is 
because of the brightness of the whiteness of what is there. It stands out. It stands out unique. And because they're angels, then the women go, yay, angels, and they run up and hug them. That doesn't happen. What happens in the next verse? When we look at verse 5 then, women are afraid. They are frightened. Verse 5, And as they were frightened, they bowed their faces to the ground. As they were frightened. Now, this passage doesn't surprise me because I have not bit into this idea that angels are cute and cuddly and that it would be just a marvelous idea if the angels came by and patted me on the head or something like that. We have this idea that the angels are cuddly, but almost overwhelmingly in the Scriptures, when the angels appear, they scare the bejeebers out of people. Almost consistently when we read about the angels showing up, people are frightened. They fall on their faces. If somebody danced in here with a halo and a bow and an arrow with wings, I, you know, I might go the other way, but I'm not sure that I'd be frightened by such a, of an effect. That's not the experience here. The experience here and so often in Scriptures are that when the angels appear, people, for whatever reason, if it's a dazzling whiteness, if it's something about their appearance or something, people know that they are in the presence of a messenger from God. And they are terrified. So they are scared here and frightened, bow their face to the ground, and the men say to them, the angels say to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? They're looking for Jesus. Why are you looking for Jesus in a tomb? Okay, why are you looking for Jesus in a tomb? And then verse 6, He is not here, but has risen. Now, if you've got the ESV version here, and you look down here, that sentence ends in a period. He is not here, He is risen, period. And I mentioned this before, the original manuscripts of the Greek does not use ex, uh, d doesn't use punctuation, so there's no description here of what the punctuation should be. But I wonder if they miss this. Shouldn't we have an exclamation point at the end of this? The, they're not here, he has risen. That there's an excitement, there's an enthusiasm that is put forward here. The, the, the men, the angels, are saying, why are you looking? They ask a rhetorical question. And they say, why are you looking here for the dead? He's risen, he's alive, get out there and do it. But then maybe not. Because notice what the angels say after this. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise up. So what do the angels do? They ask a rhetorical question. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Then they make a statement. A state uh, they make a statement. Uh, he is risen. He's no longer here. He is risen. And then they issue a command. And what is the command? The command is to remember. 200 times in the Old Testament. This is about once on every third page or so. The command is given to remember in the Old Testament. The biggest command, the most frequently repeated command in all of the Psalms is not love the Lord your God, it's not sing to the Lord, it's not praise the Lord. The most frequently used command in the Psalms is remember. Why is that? 
I think here that remember in God's eyes is a synonym for having faith. It is having faith. See, now this is the whole point with the, the women. They come to the tomb. They're bearing all these spices. They're overwhelmed by their experience. What do they know for sure? They know for sure Jesus is dead. They know for sure that he was buried in this tomb. They know for sure that he is lost to them. And so they bring all these spices. That is the... Uh, you, now, we're so used to the idea that Jesus rose again from the dead that we don't appreciate that the women were convinced of the truth of their statements, of their knowledge, of their experience. Jesus was dead. And yet, the, the, the angels here, when they go to upend the, their, the women's thinking, they don't say, hey, have faith in this. Or, or some, they say, remember, remember. There's an implication here that if you remember the work of God, you will be able to have faith even contrary to every experience you have. You can be sitting in the worst time of your life. You can be having the worst experiences, the most trying, struggling. You can have sorrow upon sorrow. And God's call to you is not have faith or or praise the Lord or God's call to you is remember. I know in the times of disbelief in my own life, when sorrow has grabbed a hold of me, or frustration has grabbed a hold of me, or disbelief has grabbed a hold of me, or doubt that something is going to work out, or I don't know how I'm going to handle this problem, or this situation is bad, or any I know over and over again the exercise of faith in my life is to remember. And I go back and I say, but I well remember how my Lord saved me in this situation. I well remember how God carried me through this situation. I well remember how all of these things took place. And that remembering is an act of faith. Here at Hebron Church, we have 170 years of history. And there are times when we are going to be confronted by challenges and question marks. And hey, how do we move forward? How do we do what's right? How do we allocate our funds? How do we do ministry in such a way that is going to connect with our congregation, that's going to connect with our community? When we ask those questions over and over and over again, the response of faith is to remember we have 170 years of God's faithfulness to this congregation and we have to encourage one another and say, but remember how God has been faithful to us in the past. Our short-sightedness, our unwillingness to not remember anything past our own lifetime is killing our faith. We know that to be the truth because in the Old Testament when the prophets call forth for the Israelites to have faith and to remember they're hearkening back hundreds of years to the Passover or to Abraham or to Moses. And here we are saying, I am telling you, get used to the practice of remembering God's faithfulness, if not in your life. If you're so self-centered and you can't see God's faithfulness in your life, then start paying attention to how God has been faithful through the ages with His people. Read the Scriptures. Know the Scriptures. And realize that you're given the Scriptures so that we can remember God's faithfulness 
and in that faithfulness to act then. And you can tell that that's exactly what the women did. Because look at verses 8 and 9. So the, the angels here say to them uh, a rhetorical question. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? And then this uh, emphasis of, hey, he's risen. Don't worry about it. And then thirdly, uh, this command, go ahead and remember. And in remembering, have faith. And you can tell that's exactly what the women do in verse 8 and 9. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. What are the two things that the women do? When confronted with the reality of the resurrection, they remember His words. And they tell of what God has done. That's what it means for you to have faith. If you will be a man or a woman of faith, you will be a man and woman who remembers the goodness of our God and who tells of the goodness of our God. That's what it means to be a man or a woman of faith. But I want to go back for a second in verse 5b, the end of verse 5, and look a little bit more at this rhetorical question in which the, the angels offer. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Now clearly the tone of this passage is somewhat critical. Uh, the, the, um, the women are being rebuked here. Why are you seeking the women Why are you seeking the living among the dead? Why are you doing that? That's not what you're supposed to be doing. There's a critique in there. But what's being critiqued? Not the seeking. The seeking here that the angels use, that word seeking, is the same word that Jesus uses over and over again for what it means to be a disciple of the Lord seeking after the kingdom. It means putting your passion and heart and soul into something. Being dedicated to it. It's different than look. Don't look for something. Seek after it. It's to put your heart and soul into it. Jesus calls forth that kind of response. And the angels here are not rebuking that. What are they rebuking? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Now, what they're talking about, obviously, is why are you looking for Jesus in a graveyard, in a tomb? What are you doing there? But that's not what dead necessarily means. What is something that is dead? Something is dead when it's powerless. Now, we all know what dead means, dead bodies and stuff like that. But think beyond this. What defines a dead body is its inability to do anything. It's powerless. It, there's, there's no power here. And we see that in a number of different places. A dead battery, or a dead cell phone, or a dead car, or somebody who's dead tired. You know, they don't have any energy. They can't do anything. They're powerless to do something along these lines. And what the angels are saying here is why do you, and this is now directed not just to the women, but to those of us who now read these words, why, brothers and sisters, do you look for what is life? Why do you look for that which is living among that which is dead? When Kelly and I were living up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, we were working at a church, we were doing youth ministry, working with middle schoolers, and uh, I was not really good at that, or maybe I should say I was really bad at that, and I didn't tell anybody the story when I was trying to get this job. Uh, but we made, we made some bad decisions and stuff like that. 
So one of them is we've we got a Halloween. It's, uh, we gather all the middle schoolers together for Halloween, and we take them to a haunted house. And the haunted house was a really scary event. You know, and so we're all scary. But I just don't want to gather the kids and just let them have fun. I'm going to teach them something. So we decide we're going to go, and we're going to talk about uh, uh, Halloween. Let's talk about the resurrection. So we talk about the resurrection with the kids. Well, where do you talk about the resurrection? I know. We'll go to a graveyard. So we drag all these kids after the haunted house into a graveyard. We all sat around a tomb, and I'm talking to them about resurrection. So it was very, very ineffective. But what I want you to do is picture in your minds, picture in your minds a graveyard. Now we've got one out here, but I want you in a bigger one. Picture a big graveyard someplace, okay? And you've got a man or a woman who's in need of something. They've got to get a haircut, or let's go with working on a car. There's something wrong with their car, and they need to get their car fixed. And you've got this guy that's running around the graveyard asking every tomb he runs into, hey, can you help me fix my car? 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 And sooner or later, somebody comes up to him and says, what are you doing? Nobody here is going to be able to help you fix your car. Why are you looking for what is life in the midst of all of this death? What is dead in our world? Well, we clearly know what is dead. What is powerless in our world? We clearly know that fame and money and possessions and focus on job and all this, all of which are wonderful and glorious gifts that God has given to us. But if you are looking for meaning in life, if you were looking for life itself, if you were looking for the purpose that God created, why are you looking in all of those places? Those are dead things. Why are you looking at something that cannot survive? This is what was behind the passage that Jerry read. Jerry's look, I'm going long. Jerry's looking at me, so I'm going to wrap this up. Uh, but uh, uh, we, we, that was behind the passage that Jerry read when he read that I, picture of the idols. You've got the idols that are here, and they're great. They're made of gold and silver, but guess what? They have mouths and they can't speak. They have arms, they can't do anything. They have eyes, they can't see anything. Why are you looking for meaning in your life among everything that is dead? And it's so easy to talk about fame and money and possessions as idols in this world. The thing I run into mostly is people who look for meaning in their lives, in their families. Your family cannot provide meaning for your life. Those things are dead things. They are powerless. They cannot act They cannot provide meaning for you. They cannot identify your purpose in life. They are not life. They're wonderful, marvelous gifts. Moms are hugging their children right now. Uh, 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 They're wonderful gifts from God. I'm not saying that. Our, Our families are glorious. Our wives, our spouses, they're glorious. They're wonderful gifts. But they are powerless to bring meaning and purpose into your life apart from Jesus Christ. Why are you looking for life among all these things that are dead? You're seeking something. I guarantee you are. 
It's human nature to have that drive to seek. You are seeking after something. Ask your friends. Ask your neighbors. Ask your spouse, what do you see me seeking after? Am I seeking after money, fame, possessions? Okay, do you see me seeking after my family? Do you see me seeking after comfort in life? Do you see me seeking after my church? All of those things cannot provide you life. Life, meaning in life, your purpose in life, comes from Jesus and Jesus alone. But if we seek Him, if we seek life, then He will grant us all those other things as well. Let's pray. Lord, we once again give you great thanks and praise for the blessings that you have poured out upon us. That you have not left us, Lord, without uh, your mercy. That you have not left us without life. That you have surrounded us, Lord, with so many wonderful blessings. And yet, Lord, so often we distort those things and make them the meaning of life rather than just the blessings that come from us as we seek you, the author and the perfecter of our lives. Bless us, Lord, we would pray, as we seek to continue in our worship of you right now and forevermore. Amen.